1: Today on the show, I brought my friend and colleague on, John Degui, to talk about what to look for when hiring a financial advisor. John is a well-known pundit in the industry and author of several books, specifically around the professionalization of financial advice. And with that, here's my interview with John.
2: John, thanks for taking the time.
1: My pleasure. Thanks, Jason. So John DeGuey of Wellington Altus, tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: I've been uh, an advisor for 28 years, and I did an undergraduate degree in political studies and a master's in public administration. And I sort of became a bit of a consumer advocate was what I was before I uh, got into the business. And uh, I've been with a few firms, I've written a couple of books, I've written many, many articles, and I think your summary is, is pretty good, that I uh, am a proponent of professional, transparent financial advice in a way that is consumer-centric. Excellent. So basically, the topic of the day is what to look for when hiring a financial advisor. Part of
1: this podcast has largely been based on simply educating business owners on what Is possible out there when it comes to financial advice. But I had someone reach out and say, okay, thanks. Can I hire? You know, I'm not quite a fit for you, but what should I be looking for? So, in your mind, let's start with the consumer standpoint. Consumers looking to hire an advisor, what should be their first steps? Because traditionally, if I may, it's usually go to the nearest financial institution you're dealing with or ask your friends. So, let's talk about what they should be doing and how that can go. And now, those two options can go very wrong.
2: I think the first thing that you should think about is what what your expectations are from that advisor and find an advisor who works in your snack bracket with the specialization that might respond to whatever specific concerns you have. So if you're a business owner, look for an advisor who works with business owners as as one example. But maybe you're retired and you want to work with an advisor who has more retirees in their practice, or what have you. Now, that obviously, there are a number of strong generalists out there, so that doesn't necessarily have to be a deal breaker. But in most of the things that we're going to discuss today, I think what we're talking about is a continuum where more is, is better than less, and, and you want to find someone who ticks as many boxes as possible. So I think the first thing you look for is someone who you can relate to, that understands you, that is obviously listening when you're speaking, and is trying to give you a customized response response, to the things that you want and need, as opposed to a cookie cutter response based on what his employer might be trying to get him or her to recommend.
1: Yeah, and I'll, I'll add one thing on the specialization piece. You ask most advisors in the this. In this country or even in the US too, you ask them, you know, well, who do you deal with? The answer is almost universally, well, I deal with business owners, executives, and high net worth families, which, which I always typically say, wow, you would deal with people with money. What a surprise. So everyone will, a lot of people will tell you they deal with business owners or executives or people with money. I would suggest go further and ask questions about specific services that are catering to those people. So it's not just take their word for it, prove it by telling you what you do for me that's different than others.
2: Strongly agree. And and I think a lot of those things, unfortunately, those are the sorts of questions that would be difficult for most clients to ask because they don't, you can't ask questions Mm -hmm. if you don't know what questions you should be asking. So ironically, in my last book, uh stand-up to the financial services industry, I have like three dozen questions or four dozen questions that you can actually ask to do some of that kind of proactive due diligence. Excellent. Yeah. So I mean, either buy John's
1: book, <laughs> or you know, there is, and then you know, to their credit, you know, the Globe and Mail, other places have published questions on what you should be asking. And I would say that's a great starting point, but also go in there specific as to what your challenges are in particular. So that's kind of the get yourself educated, get some questions together. I always say, don't just take your friend's word for it. Cause your friend could be happy with someone who's terrible, but you just don't know. They just can't tell. And if you're going into the bank, it's randomly or whatever institution randomly, you're just, it's just roulette, right? God knows if you end up with anyone good, but let's talk about like red flags. Like to me, this is where you really can detect or smell you know, the BS in the air. But pe- what should people be looking out for when they go in?
2: The things that I would say it would be the inability to give you a precise answer when you ask about what other services you offer. If, if you can't articulate what else you're doing, there's, the odds are pretty high that you're not doing very much. If the uh, advisor is only giving product recommendations without thinking about strategy or fit or planning, and specifically if those recommendations are being made without doing anything to really determine what your circumstances are in the first place. Um, You might walk in and be young and people might assume, well, this is a person who's just fresh out of university and starting out and, and needs to do some work with budgeting. But in fact, that person might already have gotten a six-digit amount of money in in a a stock option that he or she uh, did at an early age and is looking to diversify that money and actually has a a good head start and a good head on their shoulders. But if you start jumping into just, say, $500 a month without actually realizing the person's already got a quarter of a million dollars, you're probably uh, getting someone who's uh, presuming too much. So don't presume and don't, don't work with advisors that are quick to presume. Yeah, I've had some clients we
1: landed that their experience going to other people, the meetings basically started off with them talking for five minutes and then the advisor pulling out a sheet saying, okay, this is what I would invest you in. And if you don't like it, don't argue. we can change it. I'm sitting there going like... Five minutes mean, of conversation, really. Yeah. They they get anything more than your name. So yeah. So I mean, those are those are some obvious red flags. It's you know, it's the intent to sell without the intent to understand is is I think is pretty much what we're looking for.
2: That that would be a good summary. Uh, the carpenter's rule is measure twice, cut once. Mm. So uh, you should look for someone who is going to do as much as they can to size you up and to understand your circumstances. And the more time and energy they spend in truly understanding what you're all about the more confidence you would have that the person is going to be able to make recommendations that are truly appropriate for you.
1: Absolutely. Now, I think also part of it is more often than not, the conversation or the desire for advice is driven typically by a perceived need around a product or solution, right? So I, you know, I think I need to start investing. So I'm gonna go talk to someone or I have I built up this investment account or I have this money. I need to do something with it to talk to someone or I maybe need insurance because I just got married and had a, had or had a kid. That typically leads people to go meet with advisors specifically for a purpose. Can you speak to the mindset they should have beyond that purpose and the other services that they should be looking for that the that the industry can provide them?
2: Sure. All of those things could be legitimate and most people need to do all of them eventually. So why not find someone who can look at the entire picture to, to discern whether or not you need insurance right now? And if so, how much and how that would fit in with your savings plan and so forth. I think a lot of people, when the penny drops and they realize they need something, they uh-huh. rush out to have, find someone to help them deal with that one thing that, they have, or, that they've determined they need help with. And there might be two or three other things that might have even escaped their sort of ambit of of where they're looking, that they might need as much or more, but because they never contemplated it, they never look for someone to actually address that problem. So I guess what I'm saying is find an advisor who will step back and try to encourage you to do a a holistic assessment of what your actual needs are so that the response that you're given can be as fulsome as, as is necessary.
1: Yeah, I was uh, there was a debate on Twitter a while back. I think you may have seen it it was Someone's saying that if you're looking for a new advisor and they're not, and you're not speaking at least half the time, then then something's wrong. And my response was, what do you mean in the first meeting that the, the advisor should speak half the time? I mean, I honestly, if it's more than 25%, it's probably too much because at the end of the day, we need to be learning about what their situation is. I mean, there's been countless times in those meetings where someone comes in thinking about X, but you know, you uncover things like, oh, you're an American citizen. Have you been filing your taxes? No, you, no, I haven't. Why do I have to do that? Well, you got an issue. And the number of times, sure you've had it too, John, where the first yeah. meeting with someone, it's, like they came to you because they had problem X, but there's the zone of unknown unknowns. They don't know what they don't know, and anyone who knows the landscape of this world can can identify those pretty quickly if, with the right series of questions.
2: That's correct, and I think I think that would be, of and by itself, that's a good test. Is your advisor asking more questions? And it's sort of like the Columbo thing, like you know, oh, one more before you walk away, and and being perpetually curious, genuinely curious, not because they have a, a laundry list of questions that they have to get through so that they can say, OK, well, I've now met my minimum compliance obligations and asked you these six questions. But peel back the layers of the onion. Think about, so OK, well, you know, what, what does that mean? Those are the sorts of things that and I can't think of an example off the top of my head. But I think what I would say is that look for a person who, when they start asking you questions, asks follow-up questions, first derivative questions, that the the next question is not on their pre-existing list of questions to ask, but flows directly out of the answer that you gave. And because you said something that triggered something in their mind, they then went back to you and said, so tell me more about this to make sure that they're understanding the situation and determining whether or not you might need more help with that thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the traps people fall into is, you know, we'll call it the satisfaction of of basically assuming that, or satisfying by assuming that the person you meet is basically working in that industry, so therefore credible, right? Whereas, unfortunately, John, as we know, the minimum bar for entry into this industry is not very high, and the requirements for training beyond the bare minimum are pretty much next to non-existent. So in regards to that, can you speak to the kind of credentials that an individual should be looking for when they go and seek
2: advice? The first thing that I would say is you might want to look at licensure. So what are you licensed to sell? And the three main product lines are mutual funds, stocks and bonds, and insurance. And uh, um, about uh, 85 or 90% of the people who give advice are not licensed to sell individual stocks and bonds. They only have a mutual fund license and or a mutual fund with insurance license. So if you are going to need, if you have individual securities that you want to hold, or if you want to buy ETFs, although that's starting to change, You might not be able to get all the things that you need just on the basis of what kind of a license that the advisor you're talking to has. So that's licensure. But from there, we go into designations. The main designations, I would say, are CFP, CLU, and CFA. CFP is a certified financial planner. Uh, CLU is a life underwriter who has specialization with regard to insurance. In a CFA, which which you are is a specialization in, in uh, analysis for securities and, and more hardcore portfolio management. Most people who are credible and have been in the business for a while would have at least one of them. And I would hope that whoever you deal with would have at least one. There are other things that are sort of secondary. For instance, I'm a CIM. That's a certified mm-hmm. investment manager. It's one of the things that you can do to use the path to become a portfolio manager. And that would be the final thing that I would say is in addition to the three questions of licensure, you might want to give some thought to whether or not the person you're working with uh, will have discretion and whether they do or not, whether or not they will act as a fiduciary. And, you know, we talk about uh, the organization that you chair. Everyone has to be a fiduciary. But if you're working with the portfolio manager, all portfolio managers, as a by virtue of being a portfolio manager, are also fiduciaries. And I think that is the sort of thing that should provide comfort to many people as well.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And a fiduciary standard is one where you're held to the highest legal standard of care, where you have to put the client's interest at heart at first at all times above your own. I wrote an article for the, Globe, for the Globe and Mail about that, and I'll link that in the notes. But the reality is there's only a couple of instances or ways in which you're legally Bound as a fiduciary in this country, in this industry. And there's a bunch, there's a handful of ways in which you're held to that standard by third party organizations, which aren't legal standards, but there's still ramifications for it. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll link that in the show notes. So, absolutely. And now let's get on to the, uh, everybody's favorite topic fees. When it comes time to ask, what does this all cost? Where are the red flags or what should people expect?
2: Anything that is not clear, and to me, clear means it's in writing. And the first thing that I will point out is that there are multiple levels of fees. And if the advisor is not clear about the multiple levels of fees, then there's a concern. So you've got product costs. How much do these product cost me? You've got advisor compensation. How much is the advisor going to charge me? And that may or may not be included in the product costs, So you have to ask about that. And then are there any additional costs? Custody fees for registered accounts, trading charges, what have you. So those three things in aggregate make up the sum total of what a client would typically pay. And so what you should ask is a breakdown clearly in writing, this should not be a surprise if the advisor doesn't have an answer ready for you. And in writing right there, because it's, it's a basic question. You wouldn't buy a car without asking how much it costs. So Mm -hmm. the advisor should have an answer ready for you right there in writing here, read this. This is my fee schedule. This is what the products I use. These are the products I use. This is what they cost. And these are the additional costs for you know trustee fees and what have you. And that in aggregate should make it very clear to you exactly how much you should expect to pay if you're working with this advisor. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, she uh, you and I have both experienced, I'm sure you'll agree with this,
1: that you know, the number one area of shenanigans in this industry I see with advisors on, on fees is basically not full and transparent. So specifically like, hey, I only get, here's my fee. You're only going to pay me 1%. But then they turn around and they buy funds with MERs that are 1.5%. Next thing you know, you're at 2.5% all in. But yeah. they don't tell you that. And and what what people need to understand is that in Canada, whatever is charged in the account directly to you shows up on your statement. So the custody fees you mentioned, John, the the advisor fee, transaction costs, the trustee fees... But the embedded fee within any investment product, with with, with almost no exception, ETF, mutual fund, whatever it is, is not showing up on that statement. So you need to have an understanding for what that is too, before you understand what it is you're fully being charged.
2: And I would add to that, Jason, that the industry has not been the consumer friend, because there are certain lobby groups within the industry, and I I would say primarily the mutual fund uh, people, that are being deliberately opaque in the way they do things. So the total cost to the client is the sum of the product, the advice, and those additional transaction charges and custody fees that we talked about. At the end of the day, and I would say now as a result of legislation that changed now four or five years ago, at the end of the year in January for the previous year-end, CRM2 has mandated that firms send their clients an accounting of the fees that they paid. But that's just the fees they paid to the advisor and his or her firm. It does not take into account the product cost. And as you say, products can be costing as little as zero with direct securities, stocks and bonds, and all the way up to uh, F-class mutual funds. That might cost in many instances over one and a half percent. Yep. So that's anywhere from zero to probably one and three quarters percent that you're paying. And that's not showing up on any statement. And if you don't ask and the, the advisor doesn't say so proactively, you might never know.
1: Yeah. And it, it is the nefarious advisor's favorite shenanigan is to only quote their fee and not everything else, in my opinion. I've seen Perfect. that pulled more times than I can count. I'm gonna go that's back correct. to what you said about the written writing disclosure of fees. Okay. So Perfect. Here's the thing, like I, you know, personal experience, I have, you know, we have this on our, on our onboarding question uh, presentation. So we have our slide decks where we, we put it up there. We have disclosures we sign off on. This is consistently applied. If an advisor is telling you verbally and they can't, they don't have like a fee schedule spelled out in front of you. I think there's another issue here that a lot of people don't think about. It's, I mean, I've had this happen before where clients where prospects have come back to me and said, are your fees negotiable? and you know you can have a different opinion than me on this but my response is always no and it's simple i apply one fee schedule across the board to my clients full stop because it's not fair to do anything else unless i'm segmenting for levels of service right if i was charging if i was providing a more comprehensive service to one group than another the fees should be concurrent it should be should be related to that but i think too often people think of it as hey I'm okay, I'm going to go negotiate the best deal I possibly can for myself. But you can't be assured that you're getting as good a deal as everybody else that this person is dealing with, right? And that's something that if you don't have someone who's got a clearly defined fee schedule that they can lay out in front of you, you're a danger to that. Like Maybe they're sitting back and thinking like, "Ah, I'm going to quote them this because I think they're not that fee sensitive.
2: And I think, think back, if you were going to buy a flat screen TV, imagine if you had to deal with a sales representative and the person and you asked them, you know, is the is the cost of that TV negotiable? I guess it still happens with regard to automobiles if you're going to deal with, with them, although it's less of a concern than it was, say, 15 or 20 years ago. My point would be: if you honestly think you can negotiate a, a better fee, the question that it begs immediately is, what does that say about the kind of person that you'd be hiring? Because if he or she is prepared to negotiate, then it sounds to me like what you're dealing with is a person who's salesy. Professionals have fee schedules, and that's just standard. If you want to talk to a lawyer or an accountant, they'll tell you what a tax return costs or a corporate return or a or a will or a power of attorney or what have you, marriage contract, whatever. You'll know what it will cost. Sometimes it's by the hour. Sometimes it's by deliverable. But it's it's clear. It's almost always in writing, and it's not negotiable. And if you want to negotiate, I would think that that would actually be, I would actually go so far as to say that if the client wanted to negotiate, that would be a red flag for the advisor because the client wants someone who is less than professional and more salesy. Well, I mean, I get
1: that. It's interesting. It goes back to one conversation I had with a client on this specifically where they came back and asked about that. And I said, look, I hope you respect the fact that I'm not going to because of XYZ, like it's I'm treating everybody the same way, but I would also suggest that you contemplate any, if anyone else is going to negotiate with you on this, what that says about them. The only thing you care about is the price and you know then there's another issue altogether, but at the end of the day that is something that honestly it was one of those things where if the client doesn't respect the fact that I am doing that, it is a concern. Now that said switching from fees, I'm going to go and talk about one of my personal gripes and I was just talking to a mutual colleague of ours and writer for the Globe and Mail Rob Carrick about the exact same thing and he agreed with me on this. Maybe you've encountered this. I feel like unfortunately the media is largely just beating up on fees because hey, you're getting screwed on, on cost is a, is a simple story to tell people that gets people enraged and and gets clicks. But at the end of the day, I think that the industry and the, I'll get to the industry and reason why in a second and media in general has done a terrible job of explaining to people value for money in this industry. Right. Mm -hmm. And in general, like you could pay two advisors, the exact same amount of money but end up with radically different value propositions, one that may not even have a value proposition to one that handles every comprehensive aspect of your life. Have you encountered any people who are, and in my experience, I find especially the millennials who've come into money really struggle with this because they've grown up their entire lives reading about not paying for stuff in our industry. And then suddenly they need real help and they struggle because they recognize the need for value. So have you noticed like this this trade-off at all? Or how do you address people who push back on fees and 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 basically get them to focus on value.
2: The saying uh, that I'm, we've all heard is price is what you pay, value is what you get. And so you have to go back to what you mentioned earlier, Jason, is talk about the services that you offer. And if someone is offering a lower price, ask them, well, well what about the services that I'm offering here? Does the other person offer those services? Well, that's worth something. And I suppose if the client feels they don't need those services, then maybe it's better value to go to someone who's going at a lower lower price but as long as you're comparing apples to apples you're getting you know these services at a at a 1.5x with one person and then you're getting reduced services at at 1, 1x for someone else and then you can decide whether or not you need the the additional marginal service and if you're prepared to pay the marginal price but well, that's the sort of thing that most people aren't used to again it's because they don't know the industry very well so it's difficult well. In fairness to clients, those are questions that are not necessarily intuitive. And again, the questions about the products that you're that you're using, uh, you can be also um, offering better, better services, but they're marginally better, but the products cost 1.5% more. Well, now there's a trade-off not only between what you're paying for the advice, but also what you're paying for the product. And if you're getting uh-huh. good advice and, and paying for it and but you're also using expensive products and paying for that, and those products are not adding value, then the sum total of the value add or subtract is going to be convoluted because it will take more than one factor into it.
1: Yeah, so I like what you have to say there in particular about the Contemplate if you really need those services, right? Like there are at the very high end of the spectrum, there are family office services that will organize your gardeners for you. If that's something you don't feel like paying a third party for because you don't want to pay for that, that's fine, right? If the only thing you value is is basically investing your money and you don't want to talk to anyone, then go talk to then go set up a robo advisor account, right? Like that's what it comes down to. It's what do you actually value? But I would also say you're still subject to the to the problem of unknown unknowns, right? And I'm sure John, you've had this like I have. People are like, but I've got a simple case, right? My case is simple, right? Everybody likes to think they're simple, but I'm like, I remember one woman who said this to me in particular, I'm like, wait a sec, what do you mean simple? Your husband's an American citizen, your son is disabled, and you have this giant commuter value pension decision to make in the next three months. What part of that do you think is simple? And they kind of laughed and they're just like, yeah, well, you're right, right? Like it's, there was, there was no easy in that person's world, but you know, it's normal to the herds, what she's saying. I don't think it's complicated.
2: It's an unknown unknown. So it's a, I think we're sort of all sort of uh, quoting Donald Rumsfeld here. So it's the sort of thing where you don't know what you don't know because you don't know what you don't know. And it's very yeah. difficult for people who have no real capacity to truly introspectively think about what it is they truly need to interview someone who can solve the, those need problems if they can't identify the problems in the first place. It's a real challenge.
1: I've even dealt with people who've uh, or prospects who've actually hired a third-party consultant to help them find an advisor and someone who was in the industry knew the questions to ask. Right, and that was kind of a very refreshing conversation because what like it was very very black and white, very much in a discussion around where the value was, which was they were well educated on it. But this is all to say that have a deep conversation about the value, and I will say. The other issue, too, is that there's claiming you do something, and then there's doing it at a high level of proficiency in this industry, right? So for example, it's very difficult in the financial planning world. We don't know how good a job we can do for someone until we actually start doing the plan. Like That's the reality of it, right? Until I get my hands in someone's situation... I don't know what the end outcome is going to be, right? I can get a general sense before, but people are said like, well, if I do this plan, what am I going to get out of it? I'm like, you're going to get organized, you get all this as a baseline. But beyond that, I don't know if it's, hey, you're doing the right stuff, or hey, I just got you this ridiculous amount of money tax free. Like those are two very opposite ends of the spectrum that have been real. And unfortunately, John, like I'm sure you'll test this, a financial plan is just a stack of paper, right? Like yeah. someone can do a wonderful job or a terrible job for the same price. So I think the competency of a planner is very difficult to gauge in advance. And I think that requires a lot of conversation and and questioning as well that people might not be ready for.
2: And then from there, even once the plan is written, the plan is only as good as, as the implementation. So to the extent that you can actually do the behavioral coaching to get the client to follow through on the plan, if it's an excellent plan and it sits on the shelf and no one reads it, and no one acts on it, you may as well have had no plan whatsoever. It's it's yeah. There are a lot of, and, and I do some work with the FP Canada Research Foundation uh, board, and you know, we've done a lot of research with regard to, What do we do to get people to actually make the plan a living, breathing document that you refer to, that you act upon and that you actually see the tangible benefits of what of what the planning work is rather than just because what happens is people actually say, oh, I've got a plan. I'm fine. And they don't actually act on the plan. Well, you're not fine because the value is in the implementation, not in writing. Well, exactly. And I always say,
1: you know, I mean, one of my favorite topics, I'm sure you've seen me lose it on this one on Twitter. It's like a plan with, with implementation is basically nothing but expensive toilet paper. At yeah. the end of the day, that's all it's good for, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a bad joke, but it's all at the same time, it's true. I will also, at this point, turn the, the lens back on the industry in general and say that a big part of the blame falls on the industry altogether for two reasons. A, did you make a series of recommendations that the clients were even willing or emotionally able to take to take, right? Like making a bunch of recommendations that people, you know, saying hey, you need to sell and downsize your house or get rid of the family cottage in order to make this work. Maybe that is the final solution or the only solution that's going to work. But those types of things that they're not emotionally ready for if you don't work with them are doomed to failure, right? So that's part of it is, did we make recommendations that are not just quantitatively viable, but also viable to the client situation? And the second piece of that is, did the industry, the person in the industry actually who provided this plan, actually do it with the purpose of actually providing and implementing a plan or was it a checkbox to shut up the client and i saw this at a major brokerage firm i used to work at all the time it was like oh they got the plan drawer plan drawer it was like it was just to give them that checkbox and there's a very big difference so i'm going if i'm going to encourage people to do anything it's to specifically have conversations around the implementation of how a plan gets brought to life because otherwise just go buy some Charmin Extra Soft because it's basically yeah. the same thing. It's a better feel.
2: <laughs> and, and a lot of a lot of implementation revolves around trade-offs because if mm-hmm. you know, if it's really obvious and there's only one course of action, that's fine. But almost always, you you have to decide about well, we'll, we'll travel less or we will uh, work longer but we can't you know, retire early and still travel as much as we wanted to. So now we can you know, model this out for you, Mr. and Mrs. Jones. We can do it one way, we can do it the other. Here's what it looks like under both scenarios, which do you prefer, but don't pretend that you can retire early and continue to travel the way you have indefinitely without running out of money, because that's not viable.
1: Yeah, that's what I always warned them. And when we start get started, it's like, look, I'm going to start this plan. And if it works out fine and you have to change nothing in your life, I'm just going to go over how to make it better. But if this thing hits a brick wall, you're going to get a phone call from me basically saying we need to chat because it's like, where are the trade-offs you're willing to accept as opposed to me telling you your trade-offs that, okay, so guess what? You have to work for five years longer. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, you have to cut this. Well, I don't want to do that. Well, somewhere, it's like the old saying, if everything's important, nothing's important. Somewhere in the spending or the goals, there's a malleable goal that's not important. Right, And that thing can be shifted around for the sacrifice of everything else.
2: Now, one thing that you haven't asked about, but I think it might be relevant to this discussion at this point, is return expectations. One of the things that we've talked about in the past is that a lot of, I think if you want to start talking about the question that you asked at the very beginning about the red flag, any advisor that uh, will just say, oh, yeah, we can get you a, a double digit return, don't worry that's that's a serious red flag because you know return expectations have been dropping most people use expectations that are far too high to begin with and then further still even those that use more reasonable, relatively reasonable expectations don't take into account the costs that we talked about 10 minutes ago, and yeah. actually lower those returns further to account for those costs, both, cost both for advice and products. And so as a result, I think actually in many instances, if you have a question about what kind of return should I expect, and you're speaking to multiple advisors, in most instances, it's a reverse indicator. And the advisor who sets the expectation the lowest is likely the most credible. I would
1: agree. And also when they set those expectations, and I know there's there's there is no perfect series of guidelines in this industry, right? The reality is FP Canada publishes their return guidelines, Vanguard, BlackRock, the yeah. major banks. In the, the day, you know, being able to point to something and say, you know, I utilize X or I utilize a, I, I came up to a conclusion based off of the reports X, Y, and Z and you know, took the average or whatever it is. The fact that they're actually able to show some sort of framework for how those were arrived that versus, oh, I just looked at the last 10 years returns, or you know, this is what I think it's going to do. Or I use a my favorite one. Oh God, I love this one. We just do everything at flat 5%. As long as you get 5%, you're fine. No that that the real reason that's an issue for various reasons. The big one, zero consideration for risk tolerance, right? Yeah. You should not be using 5% all the time when someone's got a equity portfolio, a portfolio that's 90% equities versus, you know, a portfolio is 90% bonds, right? And only that when, and here's the math, here's the math geek part of me is that if you're doing that, then you can't run a Monte Carlo analysis because you do not have a Monte Carlo analysis that's geared towards the actual risk of the portfolio anyway. So that such is life. So yeah, absolutely. I also think another red flag that comes up quite often is the Telling you, you need to do something with your investments before they even understand you. So, perfect example, we had a client call that said, You know, I was at the bank doing a mortgage, and the advisor took one look at my, at my statement and said, Oh my God, you're holding way too much in bonds. And the response my business partner answered the phone, gave was, Okay, did this person? speak to you for longer than five minutes about your portfolio, do a risk tolerance assessment and, you know, do a financial plan to to identify both yeah. your capacity for risk and your need for risk. They're like, no, they just looked at the statement like again. Right. And, or, you know, I had one the other day is like, oh, is that RBC? And they were telling me pick like on the bank. They were telling me I'm paying way too much in fees. I'm like, okay, great. What, what should you be paying in fees? I don't know. Well, you know, anyone who wants to try to compete is just going to undercut me by, you know, five basis points. So the reality is, and and then my favorite comparison one is the, oh, here's the return graph for your fund that you were in. But this other line is the one I would have had you in for the last 10 years. And it's like, it's really easy to basically score a bullseye when you paint the circle around the arrow, wherever it landed. The reality is, is that short of being able to prove they would do that those comparisons are nonsense and no one should ever take into credibility with them
2: and the thing is that uh, every mutual fund in particular because what we're talking about really is the, the return of an actively managed fund relative to a benchmark because if you're buying something that tracks yeah. a benchmark your return would have been the benchmark exactly uh, mutual funds all carry a disclaimer saying that past performance uh, may not re- you know may not be repeated and should not be relied upon as soon as someone is making a recommendation based on past performance that to me is a clear sign of charlatanism because yeah. they, they they either know better and they're pulling your leg because they know better but they figure you don't or they're foolish enough to not even know better and this is basic and that's that's a yeah. real red flag. Well, more often than
1: not, I find it's just simply that they're they're trying to win the business by basically saying okay. You can easily go on Morningstar and see, okay, that was a top performing fund in that category. That's what I would have held you, had you hold. And i said, that's fantastic that that guy told you that. Can you go get their chief compliance officer to sign off on a letter confirming that? And it's like, why would I do that? Well, they're making a claim. They should have no problem validating it, but someone who's going to basically say it's true. Not so much. So <laughs> so I think we've, you know, some of our worst stories and gripes come into this, but uh, I think we've given people a pretty effective conversation around discussions on cost, on value, on red flags, on the charlatanism that they may encounter. At the end of the day, I think it comes down to, if I'm going to sum this up, someone who's transparent, someone who clearly demonstrates a concern to learn about you, someone who basically has a value proposition that is one that you are A, looking for, and B, willing to pay for, are all things that need to come into play. Now, as for where to start, besides asking all your friends for advice, there's a couple of resources online that uh, that people can look to. John, uh, care, to, care to share?
2: You've mentioned uh, FPAC uh, and certainly FP Canada. So those would be the two main uh, groups that I would uh, look at. The other thing that I should mention very quickly, though, before before we go into that, and, and you would, I don't know the uh, websites off the top of my head, so you can either add them on or if you know them up. You yeah, we'll we'll look them in the show notes. But the other thing that I would say is there's a book that came out about two months ago called Noise. And the concept of noise is uh, one of the one of the main concepts is something called decision hygiene, which is basically being clear and consistent and purposeful in your decision making. So if you're going to interview multiple candidates for the job of being your advisor, it might be worthwhile to at the outset, at the beginning of the process, before you interview any of them, think about think deeply about what it is that you hope to accomplish Think about the questions that you heard us talk about either directly or implicitly in this podcast, write them down and make sure that you ask all of the candidates that you're interviewing the same questions so mm-hmm. that, and then, and then write down their answers so that you can compare them and contrast them. Because I think having a purposeful process is a good way of actually imposing a discipline on your decision-making that. Otherwise, you're just winging it. And it would be a bit unfair to criticize the advisor for just winging it or being salesy in a meeting if you're just going to wing it and be and be a salesy, want to be a prospective client in the meeting as well. You're guilty of what it is, what it is that you're criticizing. So you've got to do your work on the front end too.
1: Yep. And I would always say, you know, further than that, you know, you're right about the interviewing of multiple people. We've had plenty of cases where people have come to us first Hessa and some other method and they will basically say, oh, this is fantastic. Let's get started. And my response will be like, well, you've spoken to no one else yet. Like, you owe it to yourself <laughs> to basically go out there and speak to at least two other candidates that come highly come highly recommended and, and have all the credentials and make sure that we're the right fit for you, right? Because at the end of the day, part of the problem, one of the issues a lot of advisors have is trying to close every bloody deal that comes across their desk. I mean, like there is such a scarcity mindset to advisors. They got it. They got to close everyone. Right. Whereas I've always been of the belief that you do this, right. This is one of maybe two people you deal with in your adult life, if you get it right. And if you do that right, you should take the time to do that. And then that's only going to work if the value proposition matches with the life requirements of the client. And whenever there's a mismatch to that, you're just creating friction. If you're all about planning, comprehensive service, and all this other stuff, and the client just says to you, look, I've got three advisors, and I want if you return more, I'm going to give you more money, and they return more, I'm going to give them more money. I mean, first of all, they set up the worst possible bet because, like, the only person who wins are the, is the one who takes the most risk with that, and it either blows up in their face or it doesn't. And, and free- unless the
2: market goes down, then the person who takes the least, least risk wins. Yeah,
1: exactly, right. So, and the, the so the person wins the least. So you're just hoping that in that, you know, so so sadly, you may lose one third of that investment or a big chunk of it in order to figure out who the charlatan is. But if the market continues to go up in a long bull market, then you're giving money to the exactly the wrong person. So, ter- never do that, people. So that's that's the first thing. But in general, like. Like if that's the kind of mismatch, if you're looking for just someone to shoot the lights out, which by the way, you're already in the wrong, you're already thinking wrong about this, and you're going to and you're trying to basically provide service and vice versa. If the client wants a comprehensive service and all you care about is investing their money in mutual funds, that's a relationship doomed to failure. It's just like a bad relationship in real life where you're like, those people have nothing in common. Why are they together? All right. Well, John, thank you very much for taking the time. I hope uh, hope people took a lot away from this, and we'll keep this in mind when they go shopping for an advisor. Where can people find you and seek out uh, more
2: information? I've got two websites, one for the work that I do as an advisor and one for my uh, my writing. Uh, so uh, www.standupadvisors.ca, advisors, Advisors is my advisory website. And then for my book and my writing and other things that I do, including podcasts like this, I sometimes put them on. You can go to uh, standup.today and uh, poke around there as well. Excellent. John, thank you so much. Thanks Jason, pleasure for uh, being with you today. So that
1: was my conversation with John DeGuy about what to look for when hiring a financial advisor. Hope you enjoyed that. Please take everything we said to heart if you can, seek out some of the resources we talked about. And like I said, if you get this right, odds are, twice in your adult life and probably twice because the advisor is going to retire at some point. (laughs) That's the reality of it. So uh, as always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, take
2: care.
0: This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.